Well, this morning I want to start with a story, a true story, of radical generosity taking shape in the life of one man. Larry Stewart was born in the year 1948, and at least from the outside looking in, he didn't have an easy start to life. He never knew his father. His mother left him while he was still an infant to be raised by his grandparents in a small home in Mississippi with no indoor bathroom and no water heater. And, and so, so materially speaking, Larry didn't have a lot while he was growing up. And, and, then, and then fast forward a few years until this time when Larry's in his early 20s, right after college, and things remain difficult for him. His first job after college as a door-to-door salesman, it doesn't pan out. And so, so Larry's left with no source of income, and he's kicked out of this hotel where he'd been staying because he can't pay for it, and he finds himself homeless. And so, so Larry's in this desperate state. He knows he's got to eat, but he's got no job, no way to make money. And so, so he, he, he takes this def- desperate step one morning of going into a diner. He orders and he eats a large breakfast, fully knowing that he's got no money in his pocket. And, and then what he does on the way out as he's, as he's walking past the cashier is he tries to pretend that he lost his wallet. So that's why he can't pay. So, so, so while he's trying to make his case to this cashier, who, who my guess is the cashier is not giving him any wiggle room, the cook from the diner comes out. And he kind of hears what's going on. And then he bends down. He pretends to pick something up off of the floor. And he hands Larry a $20 bill, which back in the early 70s was a bunch of money. It, it was more than enough money to pay for his meal with plenty left over. You must have dropped this, the cook tells him. And then a Kansas City newspaper finishes the story this way. It says, says, after paying for breakfast, Larry pushes his car to a gas station because he was out of gas. He fills up and he hits the road. And then then finally he just comes to his senses enough because things were crazy while he was trying to get out of the restaurant. He comes to his senses enough to realize that there really wasn't a $20 bill that was on the floor. When the cook stooped down to pick up that $20, it wasn't like somebody had really accidentally dropped it in the booth. No, what had happened is the cook had sacrificed from his own wallet to show generosity to Larry. Here's what it says. It says, it says the cook had realized Larry's situation and had helped. So, so, so he was shown generosity in this very timely, very intentional, very gracious way. And so Larry says a prayer of thanks and he vows to do the same thing for someone else someday. Fast forward a few more years. And after a few more financial ups and downs, Larry's now in his early 30s. And he finds himself back at another restaurant. Only this time, he's the one that's able to help out. So, so, so it's a drive-in restaurant. So, so the, the ordering and the paying, they all happen outside. I mean, think Sonic for this. And, and it's December in Missouri when, when Larry's here at this restaurant, this drive-in. So, so it's cold. And he notices that the, that the waitress that is serving him is coming in and out in, in this thin, tattered coat. So, so Larry sees opportunity to make good on that promise, to make good on his vow to show generosity. And so, so he leaves this waitress a, a, a $20 bill. Once again, more than enough to pay for his meal with lots left over. He assures the waitress that no, he doesn't want any change. And he just says her head drops. And he sees tears start coming down her cheeks. And she says to him, sir, you have no idea how much this means to me. 
and seeing that and going through that situation just, just propels Larry into continued generosity. Right away, in the, in, the, in the same day or the next couple days, he goes to the bank. He's got $600 in the bank. He takes out $200, so one-third of his total money at that point, in $5 and $10 bills. And he starts finding strangers in a need that he can just give these $5 and $10 bills to. He starts to stand out in generosity. And then as Larry's business success grows, so does his generosity. And those $5 and $10 bills, they turn into $100 bills that Larry, that Larry hands out to strangers in need anonymously around the Kansas City area at Christmas time. And he becomes known as this secret Santa of the area. And, and then listen to this. Shortly before his death in 2007, it finally comes out that, that Larry Stewart is this secret Santa. And, and before his death in 2007, Larry had anonymously been handing out $100 bills for over 25 years, giving away more than $1.2 million to strangers in need. And so, so what we see in Larry's life is radical generosity. Larry's small, humble, poor beginnings didn't lead him to be small and guarded and stingy with his finances. Larry's generosity, it was motivated by the generosity that he'd been shown. And then it was also motivated by this lesson that his grandmother just baked into him. Even though they didn't have much, the lesson was it's more blessed to give than to receive. Or, or I love the way I saw it stated in one account. I love this. It says, you don't live well until you give well. It's a great statement, isn't it? And it's not just some cliche. I mean, there's research out there that confirms people who give have this greater quality of life. You don't live well until you give well. And this sort of radical generosity stands out. Larry's story got attention at the local level and the national level. And then, and then before his death, when it came out who he was, there was this movement that he inspired that thousands jumped on board with where thousands of people said they're going to commit to doing random acts of kindness and showing small acts of generosity around Christmas time just to honor Larry's legacy. Everyone I know is drawn to stories like Larry's where we see selfless generosity. We're drawn to examples that show us in some very concrete, boots-on-the-ground sorts of way that there are people out there who aren't just in it for themselves. We're drawn to examples like Larry's where we see that there are people out there who are living for something bigger and greater and better than, than just self and the accumulation of stuff. And the thing I love pointing out to people is that this, this generosity that we're drawn to it was a hallmark of the early church. In just the first few chapters of Acts, this sort of generosity comes up again and again and again and again. Where, where we see the church, the church is just this, this movement of people who have found Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are on mission for Jesus. And we see that one of the hallmarks of this church, one of the distinctives, one of the ways they stand out is they stand out as a generous movement a generous community of people, a generous church. And it comes up in a big way in Acts chapter 4, the place we're going today. So, so we always encourage you to follow along with us as we read through God's word, as we read through the Bible together. So I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 4, 
verse 32. And you can follow along with me on the screens or, or turn there in your Bibles on your devices. But, but love it when people follow along as we look closely at the Bible together. So here's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Listen to how generosity dominates in these next few verses. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses, they sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And so, so what we're seeing here in this description is this new community that's being created, that stands out as distinct. And this new community is created as men and women respond to the gospel. The good news of everything Jesus came to accomplish for us as sinners and offer to us. And so, so one of the standout distinctives of this new community called the church is it stands out in generosity. And so what we're seeing here is that the gospel generates generosity. The gospel generates radical generosity. As the gospel takes root in our hearts, listen to this. As the gospel takes root in our hearts, we see generosity play out in our lives. Do you hear that? As the gospel takes root in our hearts, generosity plays out in our lives. Life with Jesus gets as practical as that. The gospel makes us generous. And so, so do you remember how, how compelling and attractive Larry's story was at the beginning, the secret Santa? How drawn in we are to examples like that of generosity? That's what the early church is in the book of Acts. That's what we want the church today to be as we continue the story of the church. Let's stand out in the best possible way as generous. And then just in case you're wondering... Uh, what we're going to do today is we're just going to spend the rest of our time in Acts 4 and 5. We're going to look, look closely at it there. And, and I know some of you hear me talk about generosity. Some of you are wondering about this. Know in advance there's no financial ask coming at the end of this service, right? We're not going to lock the doors in about 25 minutes and keep passing around the offering plates until the college fund for my four boys is like fully filled. There's nothing like that today. We're talking about generosity because we want to be generous people. As we look at the Bible, this distinctive, this hallmark of generosity was at the center of the early church. And so, so as we continue the story of the church, as we embody one congregation, one local group of the church today, we want to maintain this same distinctive of generosity. It's crucial and so if you're a Brooksider, you know that we want to follow the lead of the early church and we want to line up with them in all of the ways that we should. And so, so as we seek to line up with them, we can't ignore how generous the early church was. I love the ways we're already doing this, Brookside. I, I mean, the, the example that comes to my mind first is all of the ways we help out dozens of families each year through the Benevolence Fund, the, the way we help out Brooksiders who are facing periods of short-term financial need and how you contribute to that every month and make it possible for us to help out so many families every year. You've helped families go through seasons of, of, of 
unemployment. You've helped keep houses warm and lights on. You've helped fix cars so men and women can get back and forth to jobs. Your generosity here is 100% of what makes that sort of thing possible in this place, in this community. And I want us to keep doing that in big ways and small ways so that way we stand out as a generous, open-handed church. But, but even if you're not a Brooksider, if, if you've been getting that invite from somebody for weeks and weeks, and if, if this morning is the morning you finally decided to come, I still want you to stay dialed in because I would guess that generosity is still important to you. Because, because even if we sometimes struggle to show generosity, all of us resonate with the value and the character quality of generosity. And so today we're talking about this heart that leads us to be generous. And so this is for all of us here this morning. So, so let's get into Acts 4 and 5. So, so if we're going to grow in this sort of true generosity that we want to be growing in, what do we need to know and to do? We're going to look at two things today. We're going to see that radical generosity is fueled by grace. And we're going to see that radical generosity looks closely, cares deeply about the heart. About the heart of the giver is what I'm talking about there. So, so let's dive into that first point, that, that radical generosity is fueled by grace. Just a minute ago, I read a chunk of verses towards the end of Acts chapter 4. Let's go back to that passage, and I want us to look closely at just verses 33 and 34. So I'm going to read those again. I'm going to jump right into the middle of verse 33. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, so this entire community, that there were no needy persons among them. Let's stop there. So, so, so don't miss the connection that we see here. Luke, who, who wrote Acts, wants us to see a very, a very close connection between God's grace that's working so powerfully in this early church and the community. And the very next breath, right after he mentions God's grace, he talks about generosity. The way that grace plays out, the, gra- the way that grace becomes tangible is that there were no needy persons among them. The way that grace becomes tangible is in a generous church. And so what that means is that God's grace makes us generous. It's it's as simple of a connection, but as important of a connection as that. You see, generosity is not driven ultimately by a sense of obligation. We don't want our our generosity to be driven by some sort of sense of, okay, what am I going to get in return for it? Where we're all scratch your back, but you scratch mine too. No, what we see here in this passage is that true generosity, it, it's an overflow, a spillover of grace. It's motivated by grace. And then we see this connection again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Just write down those verses. They're going to come up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Where, where now the apostle Paul is weighing in. And he just reinforces, reiterates the same thing we saw in Acts chapter 4, where 2 Corinthians 8 says that, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace, there it is, that grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. And in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, now, now that last phrase doesn't seem to compute, right? Because, because we don't usually connect extreme poverty with joy and with generosity. The only way that can happen 
is of something greater than poverty is at work in the, in the lives of these, of these Macedonian churches. Is at work in the lives of these individual believers that make up these churches. And that thing that's greater than their lack is the abundance of God's grace that leads them to joyful generosity. That's how it works. The only thing that can fuel that is God's grace. And then Paul spells it out as clearly as he possibly can, giving us this picture of the generosity of God's grace to us. Just a few verses down in 2 Corinthians 8. Look with me at verse 9. It's going to come up where, where Paul says, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So Jesus was generous to us. His act of, of, of leaving behind everything he had in heaven to become fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus. That was the ultimate example of generosity. We could be shown. And then, and then Paul continues, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so what Paul is saying here is that our fuel for generosity is God's generosity to us. It's what we see in the gospel, Jesus giving up his riches so that, we, so that way we might have true, ultimate riches, knowing God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this means that the best example of true generosity is Jesus. And this means that we don't show generosity to get grace. This means that we show generosity because we've been given grace. That's the motive. That's the fuel. And so this is big this means that the best way to grow in grace isn't just to, re- or to, or to grow in generosity. The best way to grow in generosity isn't to try really hard to be generous. The best way to grow in generosity is to think deeply and to think often about the grace we've been shown in Jesus Christ. It's to swim deeply in the deep end, if I can even say it that way, of God's grace. I mean, if we really get that, if we really get everything that God has shown to us in Jesus, the generosity we've been given, we can't be stingy. We can't be guarded. We can't be tight-fisted. I mean, how, how dare we? That would be just taking advantage of the generosity we've been shown. God's grace fuels our generosity. But how does that work? Let, let's drill into this some more. How does God's grace fuel our generosity? Here's a big part of the answer, I think. The, the, the grace we've been shown in Jesus, that grace that fuels our generosity, it's not just some grace that exists outside of us out there. Where Jesus is just some example to follow, and then good luck trying to follow it, Tim. That's not the grace the Bible talks about. You see, the Bible talks about grace being this gift of God that works inside of us works powerfully inside of us to make us different people, to change our desires. So that way we start to want more and more and more over the course of our lifetimes, the things that God wants. And we start to look more and more and more over the course of our lifetimes, a little bit more like Jesus and the things that he looked like. And and so as we start to want the things God wants and look like Jesus looks, one of the ways that plays out is in generosity. We want to be generous. I, want, I love how one pastor, he nails it. He's talking about the grace of God in the early church that we saw in Acts 4. 
right? So it's that passage we read a little bit ago. He's just talking more about how generosity was embodied there. Look at what he says. He says the gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and it had tightened their grip on each other. The gospel takes people with hearts of stone and turns them into honeycombs. So, so you get the mental picture there, right? These, these hard, resistant rocks contrasted with these honeycombs that are just oozing, dripping honey. He says the gospel takes people with hearts of stone, turns them into honeycombs, people that, that exude, they just drip generosity. I mean, it's like we can't hold on to both of the things we see in that statement, at least not tightly. We, we can't hold on tightly to everything the gospel offers of us and asks of us. We can't hold on tightly to that and at the same time hold on tightly to this exclusive obsession with possessions where we build our lives around that, right? Be, 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 because it's obvious that we, we can't build our lives around Jesus, have him at the center, and have the accumulation of possessions at the center of our lives at the same time. It's like these magnets that just repel each other, right? You, you can't have them both. That they're, they're pulling you in different directions, and the best picture I have for, for something that's pulling you in these different directions is, is a scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The, the 80s and 90s were full of great movies. And this movie right here was somewhere towards the top of that list. So, uh, so if you've not seen the movie, get ready for a spoiler alert. I don't really feel that bad though. You've had 30 years, so deal with it, right? But so, so, so in the movie, what's going on is Indiana Jones and his dad, played by Sean Connery, they're searching for the Holy Grail because that's what Indiana Jones does. They find it, Indiana Jones and his dad find it, but so do the bad guys because that's what the bad guys do in the Indiana Jones movie. And, and then as this scene plays out towards the end of the movie, the bad guys and Indiana Jones are in this kind of room slash cave with the grail. The bad guys get a hold of the grail and they start taking it out of this room where it had, being, where it had been guarded and protected for hundreds of years. So, so the bad guys take the grail past this fail-safe point on the, kind of in the movie. And, and suddenly, once the grail gets past this certain point, past this point of protection, the, the, the castle or the cave it was being held in starts to crumble, right? So, so, so walls are coming in. The, these cracks into who knows where are opening up on the floor. Everything starts to fall apart. And as the scene plays out, the, the ground at the end of Indiana Jones's feet crumbles, and so Indiana Jones kind of falls down into it, grabs onto this, onto this ledge by one hand. His dad runs over, grabs onto him, but he's hanging on for life by one hand, about to drop into this bottomless pit. But, but then he sees the grail had fallen into the same crack that he slipped into. And the grail is resting on this ledge, just not too far from him. So, so here Indiana is hanging on for his life with one hand, but, but he's, he's striving with all of his might to, to reach this grail that's just beyond his reach. But, but the thing is, as the scene plays out, we know that Indiana can't have both of those things. He has to choose. And so, so Indiana willingly stops striving for the grail, takes hold of his dad's grip, with his two hands, and he's pulled up to rescue and to safety. Brookside, God's generous grace in the gospel. And a life built around possessions. Those are things that pull us in different directions. 
We, we can't have both. We have to choose. Are we going to build a life around the gospel? And then everything that means the gospel does in us and through us. Or are we going to build a life that's centered around the accumulation of stuff? We have to choose. And then the thing we want to keep showing at Brookside is that, is that this thing we want to grab onto over here. It, it's so good. It's so worth it. Like, the, the, the gospel is so good that way. That, that, that as we grab hold of it, right, we, we realize that, that that wasn't that great at all. That, that thing we let go of. And then as we grab firmly onto the gospel with both hands, as, as we lose our obsession with stuff, we realize how good this is, but then how it changes our approach to possessions. Where, where, where we just have a loose grip now, where we hold on to those things now with, with open hands. That's our approach to them. Not this tight-fisted hoarding, this guarding of everything I've got, but this open-handed generosity. That's the difference God's grace makes. That's how grace fuels generosity. But in Acts 4 and 5, we also see that radical generosity, it looks closely at the heart. So to see this, let's go back to Acts 4. So far in the passage, we've seen this, this general description of the early church in Jerusalem, how generous they are towards each other. But then as we keep reading, we, we see things zoom in and zero in on two specific examples of the sort of acts of giving that we read about just a few minutes ago. And so, so we start to zoom in. We, we meet a guy by the name of Barnabas. So, so hang on to him because we're going to keep getting to know Barnabas as we move further and further into Acts. But then we also meet this husband and wife couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. So, so let's see how things play out as they, as they give us some very tangible examples of these acts of giving in the early church. Chapter 4, verse 36. So Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field that he had owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, so again, just one very practical example of the generosity we heard just a few verses earlier. But then in, verse, or in chapter 5, so the same context, right? Right after talking about Barnabas, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And so, so on the outside, just looking in, there is no visible difference between what Barnabas does and what Ananias and Sapphira do. If you're just a casual observer that day, looking at people coming and putting stuff at the apostles' feet, there is no visible difference between Barnabas' donation and the donation of this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. But as we read what we just read, we see that there is much more going on than just what's happening on the surface. Right? That there's this internal heart level issue that's going on beneath the surface of the life of Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're, they're selling a property and then they're giving it back part of the money to the apostles. But they're saying they're giving all of it. So, so there's deception here. They're posing as more spiritual than they really are. They, they just want to look good probably in front of, in front of this early church and in front of the apostles. 
But what we see here is that there is a heart issue that is, that is way bigger and way more costly even than any donation, whatever amount it might be, that they're bringing to the apostles. And so, so what happens next as we keep reading blows the lid off of how we normally think, but it shows us how serious this internal heart deception is. So let's, let's pick back up the story, keep reading in verse 3 of chapter 5. So, so, so then Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and, and then after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? So, so Peter confronts Ananias and just, just says, Ananias, what's going on? I mean, the money was yours. It was yours to do with however you wanted to, to play it out. Why the deception, Ananias? And then we keep reading. You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. And then when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And then we skip down just a few verses and we read the exact same thing happens to Sapphira. So verse 7. About three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. And she's oblivious to everything that had happened just hours earlier. She comes in not knowing what had happened. And, and Peter asks her, tell me, Sapphira, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? No, no, now there's opportunity here for Sapphira to come clean. Peter asked her a direct question. Could have received a direct answer. It's like, ah, you know, you know what, Peter? It wasn't that amount. We, we weren't fully honest. I don't know why, but we weren't. And so here's what we really got. It, it was an opportunity for confession, for restoration, for wholeness to come back into Sapphira's life. Instead of hiding this part of it, for her to, to show who she is to Peter and then to work forward from there. But that's not what, what Sapphira does. So Peter asks her, is this the price you got for the land? And instead of coming clean, she just says, Yes. She digs her heels in. She persists in her deception. And she says, yep, that's the price we got for the land. And Peter says to her, how could you conspire? I, I mean, that word right there shows the heart condition, doesn't it? How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? And then jump down to verse 10. And we see that, that, that at that moment, Sapphira falls down at Peter's feet and dies. And then verse 11, great fear. Sees the whole church, which you get why great fear sees the whole church and everyone who heard about these events. And so, so this passage, it reminds us and it shows us and it teaches us how serious sin and, and, and internal sin that maybe nobody else sees, but it shows us how serious this sort of sin is. There's warning here. But this warning isn't just in the dramatic consequences that we see in Ananias and Sapphira, how it played out in their situation. The warning starts when we realize that the root of everything that happens to them in the passage, the root of it all is a heart issue. It's their internal condition. Everything that happens to Ananias and Sapphira happens to them because of what's going on in their heart. And so as we're talking about generosity, that means that we need to see that true generosity ultimately isn't anything about the dollar signs on your giving statement. True generosity, the root 
of it cares about what's going on in your heart. And so, so pay attention to your heart. This is where I just encourage people to start asking questions like these. Questions like, like, like why are you giving? What's the motive behind it? What's driving it? What are you wanting as you give? Do you want a pat on the back? Why are you giving? What are you wanting? And then whose eyes do you want on you? I can't answer those questions for you. Maybe the person sitting beside you who knows you really well, maybe they can help you with that question, but, but they can't answer it for you either. These are questions we all need to ask and answer for ourselves. And these are questions we, we never stop asking. We never stop caring about our heart and guarding our heart and, and doing everything we do, but including generosity, letting that be this authentic overflow of who we really are on the inside. That's what we want. That's what we need to be, as we see here in this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and then, I know this isn't a sermon on marriage, but, but this just kept jumping out at me all week as I was prepping for this, studying this. Don't, don't miss that Ananias and Sapphira are in on this together as a couple. Because okay, that's just scary when you stop to really think about that for a while and just meditate on that for a bit. You see, I mean, I wonder how different might this story have played out if Ananias had come up with this stupid idea, this, this sinful idea of, of, hey, how about if we go sell this property we've got, give part of the money to the apostles, but let's say we're giving all of it to them. Let's do that, Anna, or let's do that, Sapphira. Uh, imagine how, how different this story would be if Ananias had come up with this idea and Sapphira had just gently come up to him firmly, but lovingly and said, Ananias, that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. Ananias, why, why would you even think that? Ananias, just go run around the block, right? I mean, spend some energy that way. Then let's come back and talk about this. Let's not swim in this. Ananias, let's not go there. Imagine how differently this story might have played out if they had started to brainstorm this, put together a plan, and then as things took shape, imagine if Ananias had just done some of that internal reflection that we all need to be doing, where we just stop focusing on externals and start thinking about who we are on the inside. Imagine if he'd done that. And even though plans had started, imagine if he'd said, wait a second, what are we doing with this? Why are we doing that? And then imagine if, if even in the midst of, of the inconvenience that it would have taken, if Ananias had, said, had shepherded his family, had led Sapphira well and said, we can't keep going down this road because that's not who we want to be. We don't want to play at this thing called church. We don't want to become that sort of hypocrite where we very willingly know what we're doing, even though it's deceptive, underhanded, and, and really subversive. <laughs> to the life of what God wants to create in this community called the church. Imagine how differently the story would have played out if Ananias would have just had some of those internal conversations and then shepherded his family along a different course. And so I know how, how sensitive finances can be in marriage. I, I get it. And really, I'm, I'm not trying to contribute to any disagreements here this morning. But I don't want us to miss what we see in Acts 5. Where, where if you're married or if you ever want to get married, 
We need to find healthy, appropriate ways to even talk about giving. And this thing is that's so sensitive for so many couples and talk about the heart behind giving. And so, so at Brookside, we always encourage everyone to think in terms of three financial buckets. The money we spend, the money we give, and the money we save. And, and then to commit percentages of your giving to each of those buckets. Baseline, just good financial wisdom, usually says, hey, let's think in terms of giving 10%, saving 10%, and that leaves us 80% left to, 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 to spend in a, in a God-honoring way. And so, so as, you, as you pursue some of these goals as a family, as a couple, as you have some of these sorts of financial conversations and, and get tactical with, okay, how are we going to make this work and what does this look like? How do we be generous? As you do that as a couple, make sure you don't just stay tactical. Talk about the heart behind your giving. Talk about how you, become, how you can become joyfully generous with what you give. So now what, Brookside? What, what is all of this that we've seen today? What does it mean for us? It's simple. Let's be generous. That's, that's the application. That's the goal. We, we don't want to be generous in some sort of what's the least I can do to be known as generous sort of way, but we want to be generous in all of the radical ways we, we've learned we want to be generous from Acts chapter 4 and 5. Let's be the sort of people that are so overwhelmed by God's generous grace to us that we're, that we're willing to hold our things loosely and be generous ourselves. Let's, let's be generous from the inside out, not in any sort of showy, who's going to get the attention sort of way, me, but, but, but not in that sort of way where we're trying to draw attention to ourselves. But let's be generous from the heart. And then as we do that, I believe that sort of generosity stands out. It gets noticed in all of the right ways. It stood out in the early church and it got the attention of the watching world. Larry Stewart, the secret Santa, it got noticed and his generosity inspired thousands. Imagine how this sort of generosity, if we apply these things in this church, in our lives individually, if we do that today, imagine how this church would stand out in terms of generosity Never, never to draw attention to ourselves, but instead to draw attention to God's generous grace that he's given to us in the gospel and what that grace does in us and through us. So, so that's the vision I want to leave us with this morning. That this sort of generosity would flow out, it would, would just spill over out of Brookside so naturally that other people would, would see it would press in, would start to ask questions like, why are they so open-handed with each other, with their stuff? How, how can one church be so generous? And that they would press in, ask questions, and that they would discover the God, Jesus, the gospel, out of which this grace, this generosity flows. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, God, even reminding us that you are gracious is such a good reminder. As we think about this grace you've shown us, Jesus, amidst everything that he had in heaven, showing the, gener the generosity of your grace and coming to earth for us. God, may your gracious nature work in our lives and in this place in such a way that we would be 
motivated to be generous in all of the ways we can. And then Jesus, may we be motivated to be generous from the heart where, where our generosity is so authentic that it stands out and just shows and confirms the work you're doing in us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.